The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. To learn more about the work of IJM, listen to the Esther series on this podcast. It's just a few shows back. Start with episode one and get a really good sense of what IJM is doing and how you can help. Then go to IJM.org forward slash rescue dash children. Thank you. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we have an important conversation with our guest, Cheryl Bear. Cheryl Bear is an important and respected voice on behalf of Canada's Indigenous Peoples, a speaker and a teacher who has traveled to over 600 indigenous communities around Canada and the United States, sharing not only her music, but her stories. She also visits non-native communities like schools and churches and businesses and podcasts. And she holds workshops to raise awareness and understanding of indigenous issues, which is what she is going to be doing with us and for us today, which I am grateful for. In addition to being an award-winning singer and songwriter, she is also an associate professor at Regent College in Vancouver, BC, and has earned a doctorate from the King's University in LA and a Master's of Divinity degree from Regent College. Her doctoral work presents an approach to First Nations ministry from the foundations of an indigenous worldview and values. And that is Cheryl's resume. But that is not how she would prefer to introduce herself. For a more proper introduction, here is Cheryl Bear. So I'm uh, Cheryl Bear, and, we, and I always introduce myself. I start off by saying Cheryl Bear Slee, Natalie Huesten, I'm Denu Slee, which means uh, my name is Cheryl in my Dakat language. And I'm, fr- I'm a person from the village of Natle. And uh, Natle means the place where the salmon return, uh, but also uh, Bear Clan. So we are part of the, uh, we're potlatch people. And um, uh, so I'm uh, we have um, five clans in Natalie, and I'm part of the Bear Clan. And uh, and I so identity. So even being able to introduce myself in my language, yeah. uh, that's something that I had to learn. I had to relearn that because I wasn't uh, my my grandpa who passed away in 1995, and he was late 80s or in his early 90s. We don't know because the, there's a different record for the church and for the hospital. Huh. Uh, he he spoke his language fluently. He actually spoke what they call the old. Indian language, which is um, it's uh, the trade language. So it's the language that they spoke Alaska, BC, and into Washington. And I think some people called it um, uh, Chinook, which is also a language in Washington. Yeah, a real living language. Um, but but he, because of um, his goal was to help us to um, be able to succeed in, as he said, the white man's world. And he told one of my cousins, uh, uh, my cousin Jerry. He said, "I want you know, I want you to do well." Not passing on the language was part of that. So I learned how to how to introduce myself properly, probably five years ago, and uh, and that's identity. Like identity comes from from your worldview, from your your parents, from your um, your language. Language is a huge part of identity, but also for Indigenous people, the land. So um, in in my introduction, I did not say what I do, yeah. and and that is a big part of an introduction for Western, you know, American Canadian folks. Yeah. Uh, 
your sense of identity, your sense of well-being or, or who you are is, is very strongly tied to your job. And, uh, and for Native people, it's, it's not. But we are identified by land. And, and that's the most important thing. So I'll get up in front of, um, in front of any crowd. And sometimes when I'm in front of like academic settings in, uh, I get invited to universities and colleges all across Canada and the United States. And it would be advantageous of me to, to talk about my schooling or, or my jobs or some of the things that I've got to do or whatever. But I don't introduce myself that way because native way is we talk about where we're from. Mm. Uh, Land is the most important value to our people. And one of um, my elders, uh, the late Cecile Ketlow, I remember her saying in a in a meeting one time, it's about the land. It's always about the land. And so this is one of our, um, yeah, one of the key things about us as Indigenous people is the land. And so when, when you know, the residential schools, and the residential schools were started in, in the U.S. in the um, 1800s by uh, a military Christian man named Richard Pratt. Yeah. And it was his his motto that said, uh, kill the Indian, save the man or save the child. And uh, and that was adopted into Canada. And, and so taking the children out of the family, off of the land and over to a residential school where they were, um, you know, and, and, and in Canada, we've had like most Canadians now know since 2008, they now know about the residential schools. Because our uh, residential school survivors uh, had a, a, a class action suit, a huge class, and they won. And because uh, they took Canada to court saying this was wrong. And, uh, and as part of the settlement, they said, the survivors themselves said, we want to have truth and reconciliation commission all across Canada. And so they got to tell their story because they wanted Canada to know what happened. And so now you have to be pretty much living under a rock to not know about the residential schools, or you have to willfully not want to know about mm. the residential schools. Um, but but this hasn't happened in the United States, and so most the majority of Americans, and that's a, that's a lot of people. They just don't know about the Indian boarding schools. We talk about it now as a slow poison kind of a genocide. And that's how serious these issues are. Can we talk more, if if you wouldn't mind, you, you started to talk a bit about the importance of land. Um, and that is something that I do not feel uh, because I, I have no idea where my ancestry is. I have no connection to it. I did a, you know, one of those, um, you know, DNA things. And I kind of know that my people are whatever, Irish or something, but I have zero connection to any location. And so I would never in an introduction or even a long conversation say, you know, I'm from Florida or, you know, my family grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Mm. Um, mm. I would like to hear more about like the, the importance of, of land. Cause that is a fascinating, I, I think it's a fascinating road to walk down, especially as it pertains to than treaties that were broken. But but first, can you talk more about the importance of land? Even within the, the Christian circles, um, there there has been like a sort of de-emphasis on place and land. And uh, and it's it's good in a sense because we can talk about, you know, when we sing songs like heaven is my home and uh, you know, I'm on my way to heaven, all these, all these, you know, good, good songs. And of course it's all true. And sometimes the the Christian ethos uh, that's that's so not land based can make us almost like locusts. Mm. So we're just on this land, just using whatever we can possibly get, 
to to make ourselves happy and to make our lives and and we forget that the earth is good you know that god made this god created this earth and 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 a lot of times christians don't have a really good uh theology of land Mm. and i think this is an important place where indigenous people can help to remind uh the church uh, we're connected to the land because of our stories, first of all. A story that was told to me by the late chief of Saikas, uh, Stanley Thomas. Mm-hmm. He, he told a story that said that the Creator placed us on our land. And our stories say that, and our people say that we have been on the land time immemorial. Like, it goes out of memory how long we've been on the land. And uh, everybody, like, um, uh, anthropologists, archaeologists, they're always trying to, like, pin us to... A certain time of when we came over and when we walked over some you know mythical land bridge which i would like to say that their legend of the land bridge is has maybe less weight than ours because in all of our stories all across north america we don't have a story of of a long walk aside from the um the Diné, commonly called the navajos and the apache people they have stories of a long walk mm. And our stories are not just legends and myths. Those are not good things to call native stories. This is oral tradition. Right. An oral tradition is a uh, people's history that is It's also very, very important to, to listen to the history and to listen to it over and over and over and over again. Um, because an and oral, oral tradition is the most important thing to us as Christians as well, because it's what our Bible is based on. So to hear um, a chief say, the Creator placed us on our land. There's a spiritual connection, and there's also um, a responsibility. He went on to say, you know, we the, the Creator um, didn't give us this land to own in a British common law property ownership sense, but to care for the land, to watch over the land, and to and, and the, the biblical word would be steward the land. So, so this connection, and then also to know the land. Some of our elders say, um, we know the land, and the land knows us. And somehow that that connection is, it goes deep, and um, and I I've done I was a pastor for um, almost twenty years, and I um, worked in the inner city of Vancouver here for a lot of years. And there's a lot of in Canada we have um, a lot of our folks make up um, um, a, a terribly large uh, percentage of um, the inner city population. So I had had a lot of uh, native folks from all over Canada that you know were. Um, just uh, yeah, struggling in, in uh, this the inner city here in, in Vancouver, and so I, we ended up having a, a lot of folks that would that we knew that would would um, uh, pass away. And uh, but because they were native, we would never um, you know uh, take them and just put them in the the cemetery here in Vancouver. We always contacted the family back home, and there's always some kind of a connection. And we would um, we would have a, a memorial. But the family would come and they would take their, they would get their loved one and they would take them back home to be buried on the land. Mm. And that's the same for me too. It's, it's every native person. We know we're going to be buried on the land and we have to be. And so my sons know that when I pass away, that I have to go back to Nadle. And, mm. and in that sense, um, that's another part of the connection. It's not just an emotional, you know, I love the, the river. I love the mountain. I love the wind in the trees off the lake. Um, all of those things speak to me deeply, but it's not just that emotional connection. It's also that because we're buried on the land, uh, in a very real sense, that land is is made of my ancestors. Wow. And and one day when I'm 
pass away and I'm buried there as well. The earth will do its work. And so one day when Mother Earth is holding me and the earth does its work and I too go back to the land, I will become the land again from dust to dust. One day I too will become a part of that and part of the cycle of life. To to that end, the treaties that were then, and and I, I hate to take something as beautiful as the exposition you just gave us and talk about a negative aspect of it. However, um, that's reality. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very graceful of you. But the treaties that were broken meant more than just terribly vicious political maneuvering. It meant something so, so much more profoundly different. Can you explain? Can you help? I mean, for as much as can be explained in a podcast that isn't 50 hours long, like, can you help un- <laughs> help us understand that a little bit? The broken treaties, it's, it's, um, it's something that is just sort of like deeply painful for every Indigenous person, because it has to do with all of those things to do with land. And it has to do, like land again, like I said, land is identity. So we identify ourselves by our land. And and, um, so when we're separated from the land, there's trauma. There's trauma to us, and there's trauma to the land. And I think that, um, and I think that's true for everybody. So I think folks who have come over from Europe and you know, have and, and then refugees and immigrants who are forced to leave their land, there's a huge trauma that they're carrying. Not only, you know, yeah, I had to flee some terrible stuff and, you know, my life was in danger, but also, you know, man, I'm, I miss that land. I miss that because there's that connection that's, um, I think, that the Creator placed in us. Um, now, the, the broken treaties, they, they go back. Uh, we we can't just start you know from right. say the 1800s and just you know start to talk about that <laughs> right. stuff because it it really it's it's deep into the heart of um, of Canada and the U.S. Right. So going back to the the founding of the U.S. and Canada, it um, there are stories that we've heard in in schools that talk about you know the founding fathers and uh, these good things. And then we as Christians also hear stories that say um, Canada was founded on Christian principles and the United States was founded by Christians and Christian principles. We hear we hear these stories and they're and they're repeated sort of uh, verbatim and and they're, they sort of give us the sense that you know yes this land is the Lord's and you know it, it's, it does something to I think the Christian um, sort of mind to feel that way. But but when when you hear those words uh, that these countries were founded on um, Christian principles, that's not an indigenous perspective. When we, um, of course, first met Europeans uh, coming over, uh, and, and a lot of folks have told me that Christopher Columbus was just lost. Like he was looking for spices and elephants and India, and he found us, so he called us Indians. And um, uh, and so going back to, to that, you know, we, then we have all of these writings from Christopher Columbus where he said, oh, these people are, you know, um, they're, they're unpretentious and they're, they're, they're childlike and they're just, they're, and he just kind of found people who he talked about that don't have any of the Lord, like sort of the old sins of the old world, that mm-hmm. they're, they were just like a, the, this beautiful people. And then he talked about, um, them in uh, or, uh, those us us he talked about us in terms of um, you know it'll be sort of easier to conquer them and then they also not only did he have in his mind what to do but they had mandates from 
their crowns back in Europe. There's something called the Doctrine of Discovery, and it actually should be rightly called the Christian Doctrine of Discovery. And of course, back in those days, there was no separation of church and state. They were just a mess, right? One of the popes had kind of gotten his way in there to uh, to put a crown on a on a monarch, and so they became sort of the same synonymous, very, very, very powerful. So they sent these explorers off uh, with a mandate from the crown and from the church. The Christian Doctrine of Discovery said that if you go to these new lands, you find these new lands, and there's no recognized monarch, that you can consider the land terra nullius, which means the land is empty. So, they, of course, found um, the Americas. They they looked at them and they said, they have no recognized monarch, so they considered the land empty. And back in the 1500s, they actually had debates as to whether or not Indigenous people had a soul. And these debates were, um, you know, I learned about this in church history, and they and the the last thing that they said about these these debates was, well, you know, they needed to know whether or not they could they should send missionaries, mm-hmm. you know, if and, and but then it's got an even darker foundation, and that was if if we did have a soul, then of course they were obligated to send missionaries, but if we didn't have a soul, then they could exterminate us. And that's the foundation right there. And so when you know one of the popes said, "Yes, they have a soul." And so when when that happened, then began a new extermination policy, which was the policy of assimilation. And so the doctrine of discovery is this thing that not a lot of people know about. And and not, when you find out about it as well, you kind of realize, oh my goodness. Like these countries were founded on that principle, and so this um, this kind of like racism wow. has, is built into the foundation, the yes. very foundation it's- upon which we stand. And and since then, we have been written about. Indigenous people have been written about as either dumb or scary uh, because yeah. you know, oh, you know, like childlike or whatever. And and then also, oh, terrifying. And especially for Christians, I, I like to talk about this because when we hear these stories about you know native people, dumb or scary, then it's easier to sort of objectify. And and if you say things like, oh, look, they're not using the land, you know, so therefore they're dumb. Uh, they're they're not using it. They they don't like progress. So we should then take the land. Or if you say, "Oh my goodness, look at what these savages did to this this group of people in this part of history." So for Indigenous mm. people, we're still being written as as dumb or scary. We still are are thought about in uh, America and Canada. And in America, I think there's this sort of there's really two ways of thinking about you know, two general, I guess, ways of thinking about Native people. And one is that, you know, the wizened elder, and it's sort of the the mythical, you know, the cool, stoic Indian who's just, right. you know, maybe even has a tear, which is, uh, you know, that very, very right. sti- stereotypical. But then right. the other one is, is kind of the worst stereotype of, um, you know, the drunken Indian and uh, this, the, the lazy Indian. And it's just so, both of those things are such horrible stereotypes uh, and and we but we do have these very we, we break down those stereotypes all the time and my people back home I always tell folks when I travel I wish I could take you home I wish I could take you to Notley and then you could meet some of my cousins who during the yeah. salmon run they work for 24 hours for you know three four weeks and and you know just see how hard some of our folks work and and the stuff that nobody gets to see, because we're insiders, right? And we're 
not all bragging about ourselves, but the stories that have been told about us since the beginning of meeting Europeans, those stories were very, very biased. And they were all founded in this, um, this doctrine of discovery. And another thing that came out in the U.S. was, the, was called Manifest Destiny. And that was the idea that, um, that oh, you know, uh, the, this common European flu you know, decimates the indigenous people's population. And, and most folks take it as a sign that this is God's will that we get the land. You know, and we're and and not even pausing for a second, you know, giving a minute of silence or more to say this is an unbelievable a, a tragedy of such massive proportions. Uh, you know, not even taking a breath, but just assuming that God has put the scepter of righteousness in in the hand of the colonizers and and given them the you know the go ahead, and that is devastating. And then, of course, you have. Later on in the history of colonization, you have the Indian boarding schools, which again I said were pivotal because that was a real turning point where the it just tore the fabric of our society to take the children away and put them in an institution where they were shamed for the, their very being. And people were told God made a mistake when He made you Indians. That's what these little kids were were told. And they said the nuns and the priests who ran the schools, the government operated the schools, but the day to day operations were all the church. And they said, we're here to fix that mistake. I was struck by something that you said. Uh, I mean, a lot of what you said, but you said, I would like to just take you <laughs> back to my home and show you, just show you what it, what it's like to see, just, just to push back on some of these stereotypes, which are just vicious and ugly stereotypes. And also, I mean, we don't have to even look any further than, you know, in our, at least our own U.S. context, the fact that we have football teams and baseball teams that still just carry these just yeah. stereotypical names and imagery. And so yeah. just our general acceptance of these tropes are, uh, it's pretty astounding when you step back and, and look at it. Um, but, but kind of on the flip side of it, um, I'm curious, what would a non-native person be surprised to learn or experience if they went and spent a week with any, you know, any hundreds of the indigenous communities in Canada. And I'm asking this because I just came back from Ghana and I spent two weeks there. And I feel like my my understanding of what Africa is before and after has changed significantly because now I've spent time with people. What would someone experience or, or come to learn um, if they went and spent time with one of these uh, many indigenous communities in Canada? Yeah, I think that's... Um... That's a that's a good uh, good question. We we long for this understanding and we long for this this stuff. But we have been uh, there's like anthropologists and different ones who over the years have just um, sort of ruined it for everybody else. I guess in a totally. sense. Totally. Yeah, and I'm not <laughs> so, and I'm not advocating like uh, no, I I know like I know get yes. woke tourism. Uh, but no, I'm yeah. just saying like <laughs> b yeah. because I don't. Because I know the horrible tropes, but also I feel like what I also don't see and what I don't get to experience is a lot of the beauty that you know, because this is your, this is yeah, your family, this is your land, your people. Exactly. And I just, I'm curious, I'm curious about the beauty that I, that we may not get to see and what, yeah. um, kind of what the opposite of those tropes are. Well, I think like, to me, I think, a um, a giant step forward is, um, is first of all, learning whose land that you're on. Who's the whose traditional territory are you on? And one of the things that's happening in Canada is one of the steps of reconciliation that we're going through. Um, 
is to to know whose land you were on. So I always ask people, you know, where were you born, and whose traditional territory is it that you were you were born on? And a lot of folks, Canadians, are kind of like, what, you know, um, mm. and and Americans as well. And and sometimes it's um, in in Canada, there's less of sort of this sort of um, enamorment, I guess, with um, with Indigenous people. And in the U.S., it tends to be, you know, Indigenous people are sort of like glorified as kind of like Disney's Pocahontas. You know, she's sort of like what right. you know, or the the Stoic elder. And so, and so when they when we when we hear about Native people, we sort of think about oh, over them, or, or, or all of them over there, or back in history. And how wonderful it was. But to say, you know, to, you know, there's this sort of neat thing called grounding and it's a psychological term for if you're, if you're anxious, you just put your feet on the ground and you feel your feet on that ground. And, and it kind of helps you to get, you know, out of your, out of your anxiety mind and back Mm -hmm. into, I'm here, I'm sitting here in this room, in this space and I'm okay. And it's going to be okay. You know, and you sort of do that little exercise. And it's um it's just simple psychology, but it really helps you to know where you're at and to uh, get yourself back on your feet, in a sense. And that's the same thing with with us. I think whose traditional territory are you standing upon right now, and where are those people? Where is their administration office? Are they um are they federally recognized tribe or a state recognized tribe? Are they fighting for federal recognition? Because that's a big deal. And how how do we help um, Indigenous people who are sort of fighting for the for the state recognition? And I think finding those administration administration offices we used to call it the band office or the treaty office. Um, now we tend to say administration office, but it's the place where that the chief and council are doing some good work and they're. Um, and that's sort of a good place to learn. Just where are your feet right now, and and how then, how then shall we live, based on what we know about the land that we're standing upon, and and getting to know the folks um, doesn't um, it's 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 tricky because we end up being like one percent of the population in Canada and the United States. And uh, and of course our numbers are growing, but we still are this this teeny tiny part of of a population of majority Euro um, Canadians and Americans. And so to find our way through that sort of maze of of cross culturalism, one of the big things is is talking about again those treaties, talking about land issues, and and. People always ask me in churches, "How do I, how do I uh, walk out uh, reconciliation?" Because, of course, in Canada, it's it's the truth and rec- it's the day of truth and reconciliation. So every church right. wants to invite me to talk about reconciliation, and they they honestly they really want me to show up and and tell them how to evangelize the Indians again. That's really how I feel. Like they they just wish that I would tell them sort of an easy way, give them five steps to how native people, you know, we can have a, have the, all the native people come to our church. But I don't want to do that because it always feels like that same old policy of assimilation. And that's yeah. what, that's what, you know, the founding, we want to get away from that. Man. It's because of uh, the, the uh, manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery and all of those things have sunk so deeply into the psyche of Canada and the United States that folks don't even realize we are walking with this stuff and we live this stuff. 
And so every Native person has walks out their door, has a cross-cultural experience. Every Native person lives daily with the effects of the history of colonization. It's not just something that, oh, our ancestors, you know, faced this this terror, the terrible Indian wars, and but we're okay now because we can speak English and, you know, we have um, an education. No, it's still happening. We still are, are fighting this. We're still, um, and until we have the same life expectancy uh, years, and until we have, you know, I don't, I don't want to fight for equality. I don't know that I'm, and this is because of a lot of our elders, like Vine Deloria Jr. One of he wrote a book called God Is Red. He wrote a book called Custer Died for Your Sins. He talked about our fight is not for equality. Our fight is for the land. It's always about the land. It's always about the land. Thank you, Cheryl Bear, for sharing with us and for launching me and I'm sure many others on a journey of exploration and deeper understanding. If you want to learn more about Cheryl, find out where she is speaking, listen to some of her music, which is fantastic. Head over to her website, CherylBear.com. I've also put that website in the show notes so you don't have to write while you're driving. Also, if you haven't done it yet, would you go over to the Apple Podcasts area and give us five stars and a review? It helps people not only find the show, but also your reviews give us great encouragement as well as direction for the future of the show. So thanks for rating and reviewing. It's super helpful. The New Activist is on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that is New Activist is. And again, it is in the show notes. And finally, a huge thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. Props, tour dates, music, merch, all of that can be found at HumbleBeast.com or on Twitter, Prop Hip Hop. He also has a few podcasts, a new podcast that you should be listening to. Just head to Twitter for the latest and make sure to thank him for today's music. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Cheryl Bear and my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffels. Take care, friends.